0: Last week, I um, started a mini-series related to the recent Supreme Court decision, which expanded the definition of cultural and legal marriage to include gender-neutral marriage or what is called same-sex or gay marriage. Uh, As it presently stands, that decision does not directly threaten the recognition of Judeo-Christian religious marriage as we know it and practice it. There is, however, a serious threat to religious Jews, Christians, and Muslims regarding issues of conscience, regarding business and services related to the wedding industry. As a congregation, that doesn't affect us. But as individuals, uh, this may become an issue uh, for ourselves or for our friends or for family members who are engaged in wedding and marriage-related businesses. The issue to the extent uh, of is the extent of religious freedom which may be refused, uh, which may be used to refuse uh, the engagement of certain activities that we believe to be religiously forbidden to us. Now that's not a new issue, and it has problems, whichever way it's addressed. Uh, because of the struggle of church and state. I want to talk about a little bit of the struggle of church and state today, but I'm going to leave most of that for next week uh, as we talk about the issue of persecution. I've decided I can't cover assimilation and persecution uh, uh, all in one frame. But I do want to uh, remind you of the struggle that's somewhat unique to this country with regard to church and state. I'm going to talk first about the American perspective, which would include us, but then we need to look at the religious perspective uh, for Jews and Christians. The founders of this country were concerned about the abuse of authority, both religious and civil. They knew the danger of a centralized civil authority and designed a government that was both decentralized and limited by checks and balances between the federal, state, and local governments and the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. But they also knew the danger of ecclesiastical authority. Many of them were Protestants and many were Baptists. Protestants knew the abuse of a central religious authority and Baptists knew the abuse of Protestant state churches. With Baptist voices raised loud and clear the founding documents of this country, disallowed the government to establish any official religion. But also, they set a boundary that the government could not prevent the free exercise of religion. This prevented religious control of the state or state control of religion. The liberty of conscience that is so precious to Baptists is built into this American love of freedom. The ability to be free is the ability to be wrong. The ability to be free is the ability to make a bad choice. Uh, One of the reasons I became a Baptist, once I got over the shock of this inverted system where the local church is the highest authority in in the group instead of the denomination, which I was used to, it made me realize that as a Baptist, I was free to be a heretic. And if I was free to be a heretic, I was free to be a disciple. That freedom is an awesome thing. It is both a responsibility and it is uh, uh, fraught with danger. Danger that in in, in the next generation or two, uh, may be um, challenged uh, or challenging to us in our own in our own identity. So the present struggle of the free church in a free state is not just a struggle of the church and the state, but also about the economy and about the press, because our culture was founded on the idea of a free state and a free church and a free economy and a free press because that decentralization, none of those institutions being able to control the other allowed for correction because our founding fathers understood human nature and power are a dangerous thing when put together. So that balance between those institutions is not the only struggle we have. Uh, We have a struggle between the secular and the religious. Now when our, our nation was formed, the secular worldview was part of that process. And they included secularism in the notion of the governments and the freedoms because that needed to protect against the struggle of ecclesiastical authority. The danger is that a secular uh, mindset can also be a crusading one that tries to take over everything. And uh, we have seen the battle between the religious and the secular in several aspects of our culture. Our culture is also divided between liberal and conservative. That's probably not very accurate. We really have this continuum between the most ultra-liberal progressives and the libertarians on the other end. Uh, One maximum government, almost totalitarian in its utopian goal, and the other one naive enough to believe that if we just got rid of government everything would be wonderful okay both of those extremes are stupid and yet many of us feel the need for less government where we want less government and more government where our neighbors are driving us crazy right i mean we we live in that in that struggle of that continuum then there is a Struggle between freedom to fail, which means freedom to succeed, and entitlement and safety nets. And our culture struggles with that balance as well. So we have winds of secular and religiosity. We have winds of liberal and conservatism with regard to how the government and the, and the state should operate. And then we have this struggle... Between uh, complete freedom and personal responsibility. And if you fail, you're on your own, brother. And the, you're not on your own, brother, we're here. Is that the church? Is that the government? What is that? That whole notion is part of what our, our struggle is. Now, Jews and Christians are caught in all aspects of this dynamic. And... Jews and Christians in the context of this culture are subject to a uh, a pressure towards assimilation. Assimilation is where you cease to have a significant religious identity. You cease to have a significant religious worldview and you cease to have a significant religious mindset. Now, Jews and Christians are divided across the political uh, ideology, though Jews tend to be more in the democratic and liberal side historically. Christians are all over the map in this context, which is why we can't seem to get together on any view of, of politics, and maybe that's good. We're divided over the conservative and liberal ideology, and over the freedom entitlement issue. Because the more conservative a Jew or Christian is. The more they believe the religious institution should care for the poor. The more progressive and liberal a religious person is. The more they think that by having the government do it. We are fulfilling the will of God. So it's it's the issue of what is the relationship of the individual and the government. Which uh, I'll talk in more detail uh, next week. So that's the religious uh, that's the American cultural view of government. I want to talk about the Christian view, and I particularly want us to look at two extended passages. We'll look at one this week and one next week. And that's the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 12 and chapter 13. Today we're only going to look at the first 13 verses of Romans 12. It's it's interesting the name that this book bears. This book bears the name Romans at a time when the Roman Empire owned the world or the known world of its time. And that Roman Empire was not friendly to Jews or to Christians. It was tolerant of them. Under a structure of them having this funny, bizarre, irritating religion that wasn't the popular worldview. And, and because they kept making a big stink about it, uh, Rome decided they would simply say, you guys can live by your own standards and do whatever you do, as long as you don't uh, mess up the peace." Okay? And we will will allow you not to uh, give allegiance to the emperor as a god, uh, you know, uh, as long as you stay quiet. But they didn't stay quiet. Jews didn't stay quiet. And Christians didn't stay quiet. And they didn't stay united. And ultimately, Rome went after uh, Christians big time. And persecution developed out of it. So it is that government, It is that world that these texts are written to. You need to keep that in mind next week when we look at it. When when Paul says that we are to obey the government, he's not talking about this American balance of power decentralized system. He's talking about a group that if you got out of line, they simply crucified you. That could make you pick up something and walk uh, a distance, carrying their their uh, uh, their burden, uh, and that was it. And so, it's not like this is a wonderful, wonderful millennial government. And yet, the commands that were given of how to relate to government are given to us in that context. I think for a reason. So, in Romans chapter twelve, we're going to start with the first part of this, and that's the issue of our identity. Who we are, who we follow, and how do we do that. Our future threats are assimilation and persecution. I intended to address both in this message. Can't cover it. I can't really even cover assimilation as much as I want to this week. So you're going to be hearing more about this later. Uh, Because I believe that these are the two most important issues in our lives. These may be the most important uh, issues really for the lives of our children and our grandchildren. Uh, And we are not prepared. As our culture becomes more secular and as religion is pushed more and more from the public institutions, our schools, the media, the courts. There was another case this week about removing the Ten Commandments from a court system. Uh, I'm waiting for the day when it's removed from the Supreme Court. Health care issues and decisions that uh, used to be made with a priest, minister, and rabbi and a doctor who are now made with insurance people and others. Uh, It's gone from, this culture has gone from a reinforcement of religion, which was the case before the 1960s, to a culture that is indifferent to hostile towards our children and grandchildren. Now, I didn't grow up in a Christian environment or a Christian home, but I did not find Christianity difficult to understand because my parents, my dad not a Christian, still basically gave me the Judeo-Christian moral code as the code that I was to live by. And the neighbors on the block would tell me, don't lie, Bruce. Don't steal. You know, be be good. I didn't know that came from God. It was just in the air of being an American. Teachers told me the same thing. Policemen told me the same thing. In my occasional contact with them. Uh, and and. Everybody was singing the same song. And that song, I found out, through release time, they they let me out of elementary school to go into a trailer. They had two trailers. One marked Catholics. One marked Protestants. And I didn't know what I was. But Protestants sounded like a rebel. So I went to the Protestant. <laughs> and... I heard the same stories about the values. Later, I would uh, come to understand that there was a gospel associated with with that value system. And uh, that would begin my walk of faith from my teen years into uh, the present time. So... Going from a non-Christian, somewhat secular person to a Christian was fairly easy for me. I had to give up smoking, they said. I didn't smoke because I was asthmatic. So that that was easy. I had to give up drinking. I was underage. I had to give up dancing. It was okay. I played in the band, so I just in other words the the things that they told me were not that far away from where i lived so now i just had jesus to help me go to heaven and that was it it was it was it was fairly simple my children grew up in a somewhat different world my grandchildren have grown up in a very different world my generation was told to be careful of people who were pushing drugs and be careful of people who saw sex outside of marriage in its various forms because that was not correct. But trust policemen, honor the government, and live a good and productive life. My granddaughters have been taught that probably the best thing for us is to legalize drugs. All sexuality is good and religious people are probably the threat. That's a major shift. Okay, So, Your children are growing up in a world that to me is foreign. And to those my age in this room, we have seen a major shift. Many of you grew up where the shift had already taken place. And while you may see some ripples in it, it's not as stark a difference for you as it is for some of us. If children, then, in this context, are not given a specific and intentional religious identity, they will grow up to be secular. You say, oh, no, no, my, my kids made a profession of faith. Well, we've messed that up. Because what we've done is we've taken the profession of faith unto salvation and separated it from living a Christian life. Because, after all, we're saved by grace. Meaning, there's nothing you have to do. You don't have to change. You don't have to repent. You just have to have feelings of sorrow for your past and go forward. Where do I go forward? Well, just follow your heart. Follow your circumstances. Follow your emotions. Because that's the Holy Spirit. So, we have set up a situation where even a profession of faith will not give somebody a Christian identity. So Romans 12, 1 and 2. After giving the entire story of God's redemption history with Israel, through the first 11 chapters, and and saying that God will keep this path all the way to the end, Paul says, I therefore urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship now he's using temple and tabernacle language here to present the body is to give a sacrifice and in this case it's the burnt offering It's the Holocaust offering. It's the offering of complete dedication to God where the entire sacrifice is burned up and ascends to God. And he says, your reasonable spiritual service of worship is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your life, and with all your strength. In other words... Every bit of you belongs to God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And he says this is reasonable. If he died for you, you have an obligation to live for him. Dying to self and alive unto Christ. To be a Jew or to be a Christian, is to leave one's home, one's family, one's culture, and one's identity of the past, to become part of the family and kingdom of God, which involves a total commitment to God as a living sacrifice, this burnt offering, in total dedication to the Lord as an obedient servant. So we are no longer citizens of this present world, culture, or nation, but citizens of the kingdom of the God of heaven. We are connected to the God of Israel and the Israel of God with all the promises of Abraham as part of our inheritance with Israel, not instead of Israel. We're brought alongside. Now, the problem is Christianity is immune to those words. They get preached and talked and preached and talked and preached and talked until the point where we can all say it aloud with the person who's saying it and just go on with our life as it was. It calls us to nothing. And yet it calls us to full obedience to the Lord. So I want you to look at what this verse follows. It says that you are called into a community. Verse 2. So do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've turned that into a decal that goes on the back of cars, not of this world. So we wear our Jesus clothes. That's putting on Christ. That's not putting on Christ. That's putting on slogans. I was going to entitle this in America but not of America. But it's so it becomes a cliche. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, demonstrate, show what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you show the will of God? Do you talk it? No, you walk it. We should know the word of God and the will of God well enough that we act it so we become salt and light in this world. But we don't do it alone. So he says, Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each the measure of faith. And just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That verse drives me crazy. Because I always read it. I'm a member of Christ. It doesn't say that. It says I'm a member of you. I'm stuck with you. And you're stuck with me. Wouldn't it be nice to just be members of the body of Christ. And not have to put up with each other. I've always wanted to be the Lone Ranger for Jesus. Live up in Big Bear. Come down and thunder on the people. Go back up and live like a prophet. So. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Now, how do we give ourselves to God Holy, we give ourselves to each other. And we do it at the level of our faith maturity based on the gifting and the abilities that we have. In other words, we form community because identity is found in community. This is not an individual uh, salvation issue. It's not, I got my get out of Gehenna free card. And now I get to, uh, you know, live my life. So, where is this learned? Where does this identity come from? Two places: the home and the congregation. Now, as I told you, when I was growing up and when I became a Christian, there were two places where my faith did not exist. In my home, because my family wasn't Christian. And secondly, in the congregation, which I never attended because I was in the parachurch world. I was in Youth for Christ. So I would go to school and we would have a Youth for Christ club meeting and that was it. And I'd go to a Bible study that was Youth for Christ people. And so the two primary institutions that were supposed to form my identity didn't exist, but it didn't matter because the cultural environment was forming that identity. And it was forming that identity in a way that I would ultimately struggle with and realize I needed to establish a Christian home and a Christian congregation. That doesn't exist anymore. Because we are now caught in this notion that our children and our children's children simply accept the identity by saying the magic words. Children evangelism is all over the church and I am seriously afraid of it. You get a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old to say, Jesus, come into my heart, get them all excited that they now have a Christian identity and they have no idea what that means. And then we feel secure and we go about our life. And the home does not become Christian. And the congregation becomes an add-on. Now, Jesus warned us about this in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 22. You know the context of this. This is the parable of the sower. And he talks about different soils and different receptions of the word of God. And he says in verse 22, The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. This is a person who hears the word and has just enough of it to be immune to the spirit of God and who is really driven by the world and the values of the culture around them. Which at one time in America was less of a problem because the values were Christian, but no more. So as you try to get your kids to enjoy the world, they are becoming identified with the world in a way that you can't imagine because you don't live in that lack of Christian context. But they do. And the scripture tells us that we are to find God in childhood and youth before the evil days come. And there's two kinds of evil days. There's personal evil days. When you get old and everything falls apart, which is okay because you can't see it or remember it anyway, right? <laughs> uh, the second is that the world is going to go through evil days, and we are nearer them than when we first believed. So, how do we inculcate a religious identity into our children and our grandchildren? First of all, I want to—I want to. Many of you know this because. You took classes with Dr. Lewis and I and we talked about the three generation uh, concept. The Bible is filled with texts about you will teach these to your children and your grandchildren. You will say to your sons and your grandsons. The idea is you will teach this so that the next generation will teach the next generation and the next generation. So your focus as a believer is not on your own spiritual life. It's not even on the life of your children. You must ask yourself, will the faith that resides in me and the passion for God that I have and the obedience to God that I have, will that live in my Isaac and my Jacob? And for many of us, the answer is no. You have to be focused on three generations. Now, when you're a child, those three generations are in front of you. The old folks. Parents and grandparents. Then, all of a sudden, the grandparents kind of go and you have kids. and Now, you're in that middle generation. And then, pretty soon, you're the old folks. You know, and... I experienced it a little last night when I got up, got ready to pick up all the chairs that I normally would pick up, and my nephew came and, and grabbed the chair out of my hand and took it. Okay? Uh, and I thought, I could get used to this. <laughs> but then I didn't know where he put it, so, you know. <laughs> but it was, you know, that was great. That three generation process is really important. If you have children, you have to think about their children. Now think about that. This culture is rethinking marriage, rethinking children, rethinking birth control, rethinking all of that. And if you're not thinking about that for your children and your grandchildren, you may not have any. That third generation issue is important. How do we inculcate a religious identity in our children? First of all, they have to have a full Judeo-Christian home environment. They must see this faith operational in the home. The markers of the home have to be there. The religious devotion and ritual has to be there. If, it's, if they leave home to go see God, then they will not have a Christian identity. God must visit in the home. That's why God designed the Sabbath that's why early Christian later Christians developed the the evening before Sunday at the end of the Sabbath as part of their preparation the idea was that the home is the first line of identity the congregation is secondary important but secondary the biblical roles and the relational rules need to be there in the home you live in a way that is self-sacrificing towards your wife, that is entrusting and respectful of your husband, that is obedient as children, that is nurturing and caring as a father. Those things are done in the home. And the home has to have the relational rules. We love the Lord our God in the home. We love our neighbor in the home. We love one another in the home. And all the commandments that fit into that has to be part of the lifestyle that that kid grows up knowing and learning. They're not going to learn it in the schools. They're not going to learn it in religious schools. Okay, If you think the answer is religious education, you need to spend a couple days on a Christian elementary school, preschool, junior high or high school, or university. (laughs) And you will see that since those agencies are now accredited by a government that makes them conform there. All you get is this kind of child evangelism nonsense and then the, the, the traditional secular stuff. So... That's not the answer. It may be part of the answer. It's not the answer. So the biblical roles, the home is really the battle. And we have to establish that. You have to be intentional about it. You have to be deliberate about it. The atmosphere, the environment has to be a place where Judeo-Christianity is fully lived at home. And then there has to be an intentional and committed congregational experience. We are trying to do that to the best that we can. Uh, That's not a program. That is us gathering together to worship the Lord. That is us being in each other's homes for community. That is a sense of shared identity. This is who we are. That's having a kinship sense with other members of the, the body and seeing the members of the body beyond the congregation as part of that as well. Now, what is working against that other than our own laziness? Okay? Here's the dangers. The, here are the... Hey, little kid, you want a piece of candy? Here's Here comes the temptations. And I don't mean the... Uh, Papa? Was, was that the four tops? Whoever. i the the temptations to assimilate. First one, the media is as secular as secular can be and the media at best mocks Christianity. And its goal is to have control of the attention of your children and your grandchildren 24-7. Through music, through entertainment, through news, if there is any. uh, Through commercials, through marketing, through apps and games. Secondly, the school system, originally very, very tied to the churches... And significantly operated by what was called the Parent Teacher Association, is now controlled by the board, the National Education Board, and a curriculum that's based on outcome standards about career success and secularism. So you want to look at the curriculum, the teachers, and the peers that your children are exposed to in whatever schools they're in. And then the one that probably bothers me the most. As a result of the 60s Jesus movement, when very, very young and immature Christians who had zeal without knowledge, I know that because I was there, and I was part of it. Created a Jesus is fun, Jesus is cool, pop Christianity. A little bit of Norman Vincent Peale, Zig Ziglar, and Tony Robbins. Look in the mirror and God's, God likes you. And he's there to help you. And he's ready to do. If you'll just think big things. God will make sure they come to pass. Which is very different than take up thy cross and follow me. There is a pop Christianity. That permeates evangelicalism. That is going to destroy our children. And our children's children. Because it immunizes them. Gives them just enough Of the dead virus of Christianity. For their immune system to build up a resistance to it. So that they can be immune. But they'll keep the religious talk. They get a new job. It'll be God blessing them. They lose a job. It'll be the devil fighting them. God and the devil could not exist, and most of what Christians say about them uh, would still go on. I'm convinced this won't happen, that God could have a heart attack and die. And most churches would go on exactly as they are for months and never notice. Because they are so deaf to God... They are so immune to God and so geared to the culture with Bible verses thrown on it that they can't tell the difference. There is no wisdom. There is no discernment because we've created an instant Christianity that doesn't require maturity and avoids anything that will make us responsible and mature. And then related to that, there is a lax family life in America Where we are too busy for each other. Too busy for our children. Too busy for God. Too busy, 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 busy. We're out and about having a life. but None of us have a life. But we're chasing the life. It's part of that pursuit of happiness. Or the happiness of pursuit. I'm not sure which it is. And as a result, what we end up doing is... Are, we're, we're out of control in time management. Judaism and Christianity believe in sacred time. And those things are the linchpins that keep the home and the congregation uh, uh, attached to the word and the and the and uh, uh, the will of God. So, I've got some questions for you. How much do you work on your children's identity? How much of it is being taught? And how much of it is being caught in your home? How much do you default to the culture through outsourced parenting? How authentic is your religious lifestyle to your children? Do your children believe that you care more about sex trafficking... Health issues, work, animal rights, politics, fill in the blank, versus following God. And the worst one is if you say, well, we follow God by being involved in those. Those are all cultural issues. Some of them good, some of them stupid. Okay? But they're not the faith. Now there are two ways for us to panic. In this. One is to become monastic. Okay? It's at this point that we say. We could all buy a big piece of property in Montana. And we could build our houses there. We could rent FEMA trailers. And surround them in there. And create a cult. Okay? And that way we'll protect our children. But we won't protect our children. We'll remove them from being salt and light. When they're adults. They're not salt and light now. They have to be protected. But they won't be prepared for that. The other one is to say, well, I want my kids in the public schools because they're a witness. We're going to be relevant to them. You want to change public schools? Become a teacher. Become an administrator. Don't put your kids in them thinking that that's going to change the schools. So we either over-engage the culture And it overtakes us. Or we run away from the culture. And we become unaware of what's going on. We have to strike a balance. We have to be in the world but not of it. Jesus found a way. To be with people. Who everyone else said. Well he's hanging out with them. But you see. Jesus and the disciples. Were immune to the world. Not immune To the truth. If our children grow up immune to the truth. They will be part of the world. We want them immune to the world. Not isolated. Immune to it. It doesn't affect them. People can be doing all kinds of stuff around them. And they don't follow. Because the internal gyroscope. Of the light of God's word. Is leading them. Now. At the present time, assimilation is our worst problem because there is no persecution. Jews know, because they've lived through all of this, that there is no problem for assimilation when you're being persecuted. How many Jews got to be German during the Holocaust? Well, I'll just give up being a Jew, right? When you're being persecuted, you don't assimilate. But when the world around you has bright lights and looks like Disneyland and Vegas, it's easy to assimilate because the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches blind us to the truth. So right now, the worst problem for us is not persecution. In other parts of the world, it is. Right now, our biggest threat is assimilation. But we may get to the place where there is a persecution. And I want to talk about that next week. So, the threat of assimilation is greater in this generation of Americans than ever before. And among adults, Christian identity is very weak and fractured. Look at yourselves and look at your friends. If we don't fix this, your children and your grandchildren will be lost to the kingdom. Now the kingdom won't fail because the gospel will reach to others who will come into the kingdom. But you don't have a guarantee that because you are in the kingdom, your children and your grandchildren will follow you. They will only follow you if they think you know where you're going. Let's pray.